Well, good morning. I am Paul Jeffries, um, not Luke Dye. I had somebody come up to me last week and say, thank you, Luke. And um, I guess they were relatively new because it says on the bulletin that pastor is Luke Dye, but um, I'm just a church member. I was a pastor in England for some years, but uh, happy to be here and, uh, and involved and engaged. We are towards the end of our summer series through July and August, uh, covering uh, the worldwide revolution, which is uh, what we have described the, the book of Acts, the story of the growth of the church through the book of Acts. And we've been following the life of the Apostle Paul as he's traveled around uh, preaching to anyone who'll listen and planting churches everywhere he went. But this has not been a series so much about the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's been involved every week, but it's about the ordinary people that he bumps into uh, week after week because uh, we aren't Apostle Pauls. We are just ordinary people. At least I am. Maybe, maybe you're special, um, spectacular. But I figure most of us, most of us are just ordinary people. Uh, and so we want to uh, relate to the ordinary people that Paul bumps into and, and how the kingdom of God is extended through them because that's really the... Uh, Uh, the tagline for this series. God uses ordinary people who obey him and who trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to equip them to advance his kingdom. So the kingdom can be advanced through you and me, all right? I don't have to be the Apostle Paul to be able to do that because it's really not us doing it. It's God doing it through us, and we just have to be available. Now, if you're new or you uh, haven't been here uh, for a while, you know about the... uh, the potential lawsuit of being beamed by candy. So I'm going to do what I did a few weeks back, which rather than ask the question and throw the candy, I'm going to throw some candy out. And if you end up with some, then you have to answer a question. It's the way it works. All right. So, and these are slightly bigger than normal. So I'm going to be, oh, I, I hit her anyway. So I'm going to be a little bit less fierce throwing the candy around. I've got to save some for third service, too. So, oh, <laughs> you were reaching for some. There we are. Oh, there you go. Uh, there's somebody over here. <laughs> there you go. Somebody over here. Spoiling your lunch, girls. There you go. Yeah, all right. One over there, over here. Did I miss anybody? Okay. Uh, somebody over here. So it's now, now you're all under, uh, under oath to have to answer questions. Look, a couple over there, a couple over here. There you go. And let's have one way at the back over there. Over here too. All right. Third service will just have to be thin on the ground. There you go. So here's the questions from last week. Of course, if you weren't here last week, you can't really answer the question, but the the candy's free. Okay. What was the name of the Philippian jailer? Was it Marcus? Was it Maximus? Was it Meridius? Or none of the above? Throw a hand up. Those of you who got candy. Yes. D? Is that what you said? D? C? Uh, No, it wasn't C. Anybody else? It's a good guess, but... Yes. Hey, what a great guess. No, that's wrong too. It's a wonderful answer. It's just not right. Anybody else? Name of the Philippian jailer. 
D is the correct answer. None of the above. We were not told the name of the Philippian jailer. If you were here, I dressed like a Roman. I was, I was the Philippian jailer, but uh, we don't know his name. Okay, next question. What were Paul and Silas doing when the earthquake struck? Were they sleeping? Were they singing? Were they shouting? Or were they swearing? What were they doing? Yes. B, singing. Correct. Well done. All right. Next question. What stopped the jailer from falling on his sword? Was it he saw the prisoners were still in their cells? Was it he couldn't bring himself to do it? Paul shouted and told him not to. He couldn't find his sword under all the rubble. So somebody over the side. Yes. A. Uh, yeah, that's, the, that's a really good guess, and it could be close, but that's actually not, not the answer that I'm looking for. Because there was a reason he saw the prisoners were in their cells. And you'll say, yes. C. Paul shouted. It was so dark he couldn't see, and Paul shouted out. And then he found out that they were in the cells. So you're right, but in a roundabout way. Okay. Next question. What did the jailer do when he took Paul and Silas back to his house? Did he give them a bath? Did he bandage their wounds? Did he give them dinner? Or all of the above? Somebody at the back over this way. Yes. All of the above is the correct answer. All right. He's like the good Samaritan. He did everything for them. All right. Uh, what do we need the most when an earthquake rocks our lives? Do we need a good therapist? Do we need an encounter with God? Do we need friends we can complain to? Or money, because money fixes everything. Somebody, somebody over here who hasn't answered. Somebody over the back, yes. B. B is an encounter with God. Well done. Nice and loud, confident is the correct answer. All right. And so we talked about needing an encounter with God when the earthquakes hit our lives. Okay. Well done. I'm going to pray before we uh, begin this week's story, which is found in Acts chapter 20. But uh, I want to recommend a little book to you. Sometimes when we pray, you know, we run out of words. This is the best little prayer book. Uh, it's still in print. You can buy it on Amazon. It's by uh, W.E. Orchard, and it's called The Temple. It was written in 1918, believe it or not, but the prayers are just precious. So uh, and the language is a little bit old, reflecting the age, but I want to read one to you as we pray together. So let's pray. O God, who fillest all things, that they only thinly veil thy presence, we adore thee in the beauty of the world, in the goodness of human hearts, and in thy thought within the mind. We praise thee for the channels through which thy grace can come to us, sickness and health, joy and pain, freedom and necessity, sunshine and rain, life and death. We thank thee for all the gentle and healing ministries of life, for the gladness of the morning, freedom of the wind, the music of the rain, joy of the sunshine, and the deep calm of the night, for trees and flowers and clouds and skies, for the tender ministries of human love, the unselfishness of parents, the love that binds a man and a woman, the confidence of little children, for the patience of teachers and the encouragement of friends. We bless thee for the stirring ministry of the past, for the story of noble deeds, the memory of holy men, the printed book, the painter's art, the poet's craft, most of all for the ministry of the Son of Man, who taught us the eternal beauty of earthly things, who by his life set us free from fear, and by his death won us from our sins to thee, for his cradle, his cross, and his crown. 
May his spirit live within us, conquer all the selfishness of man, and take away the sin of the world. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> I was born in Bristol. Anybody know where Bristol is in England? If you looked at a map, could you stick a pin, you know, pin the tail on the donkey where Bristol was? Apparently not. Okay, so here's where Bristol is on the map. It's level with London, but on the other side of the country, which is about 100 miles because it's a small country. If you're going to take up cross-country skiing, small countries are a good place to start. Um, anyway, where it's... That's where I'm from. Now, I could tell you stories about my upbringing and my life, uh, and you wouldn't need to know where Bristol was, but it's kind of nice just to kind of pinpoint and say, okay, so that's where it was all taking place. We've talked about the Apostle Paul and the travels and journeys uh, through Acts, but we haven't really looked at where he's been and what's he's done, what he's done. Now, he's actually, he goes on four missionary journeys throughout the, uh, the book of Acts, and we are on the third one. So I'm not going to look at the first two. The first one, he traveled 1,600 miles. Now, he's walking, maybe riding a camel. I don't know if they could afford horses. He's on a ship, um, but 1,600 miles. The second one, he traveled 3,000 miles, looping around the Mediterranean, and he's visiting, and he's planting churches, and he's preaching in all these different places. And on the third journey, which if we'll pull it up now, this is where he went on the third journey. He starts on the top right there, and uh, he travels all the way around through Asia, through, uh, through Macedonia. He kind of loops down the bottom, comes all the way back, and then ends up catching a ship down and ended up in Jerusalem. So that's the whole journey. 3,300 miles he takes on his third missionary trip. And where we are when we meet him in our story today is on his way. He's, he's gone all the way around and he's looping back. So the next slide, he is in Troas. You see the arrow pointing back. He stopped in Troas on his way out. And he's stopping in Troas on the way back. So that's where he is. And he's retracing his steps. And we're told in chapter 20, he's speaking many words of encouragement. In each of the little places where there's a little group of, of believers, where churches that have started and they're gathering together in homes, and, uh, and he's encouraging them. And in, he arrives in Troas, and we read in verse 7 of chapter 20, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. All right? What does breaking bread refer to? This is a pop quiz. This is for adults here as well. Breaking bread refers to communion. It's what we just did. We broke bread. Now, it could also refer to a meal because a lot of times they would have communion and then share a fellowship meal together. But they were there to break bread and uh, share together. On the first day of the week, how many work days are there in the Jewish work week? Six is correct. That's what God said right back in Genesis. Six days shall you labor, and on the seventh day you'll rest. So there were six we, we have five work days now, but uh, back then they had six. And uh, the day of the Jewish Sabbath was, is Saturday. So when it says the Christians, when it says we gathered uh, on the first day of the week, what day would that be? Well, if equivalent for us, it would be our what day? Well, we know, yeah, it is our Sunday, but it would be like our Monday because it was a work day. Sundays is not a work day for most of us. So their first day of the week, everybody's back to work. And they were meeting, the Christians were meeting in the evening after the work day was done. All right? First day of the week, we came together uh, to break bread. Why were the Christians in Troas meeting to break bread on the day after the Sabbath? Why didn't they do it when they were off work on the Sabbath? Why do we meet on a Sunday? 
why don't we meet on Saturday? Like, you know, from Jewish tradition, they're still they're having their services on a, on a Saturday. Why don't we? Why do we meet on a Sunday? The resurrection. All right. Thank you. The only reason that we meet on a Sunday is because this was the resurrection day. Christ died on a Friday. He was, he was buried. Saturday passed through. But on the Sunday, on the first day of the week, um, he was raised from the dead. And so Christians have since met on that resurrection day. And it wasn't a day off in the early days. It was after the work day. So they're meeting at night. And that's the only reason we meet on a Sunday. This, in fact, is the very first reference to Christians doing that. This is how we know they began to do that. We'll meet on the day Christ rose from the dead. Because what a glorious day to remember and to meet on. So that's what they were doing. We came together. Who's the we in this story? I'm sorry. The believers? Well, yes, it was, but it's, uh, it's somebody specific. Paul and Luke. It's actually Luke, specifically, because if, you know, Luke is writing the book of Acts. Luke writes more the New Testament than any other author. Even though Paul, you know, lots of epistles, just in sheer volume of words, the book of Luke and the book of Acts add up to more words than everything that anybody else wrote. And he was a, a companion of Paul's, not the whole time, but for large chunks of Paul's journeys. And you, can, you know when he's with Paul because he switches from he and they and Paul to we. And this is one of those passages. So Luke has joined Paul at uh, uh, Troas, and uh, they're going to be traveling on together from there. What a wonderful gift for God to kind of merge this together because if there's anybody who needed a doctor to go with him, Paul was that person because he was constantly in being attacked and beaten and shipwrecked and, and uh, stoned. He, he needed attention continually, so God very graciously gave him a doctor to travel with him. And the fact that there is a doctor with him is important as this story unfolds. Okay, so on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And then, next slide, Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. So now we know that it was at night after the workday. And there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Well, that seems kind of an odd detail for Luke to throw in. Why would, we, why would we care if there were many lamps? Well, we'll find out in just a moment. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. This is, this is a wonderful verse for, for preachers, because... <laughs> Because if people can fall asleep under the Apostle Paul, well, then I'm off the hook. You fall asleep during this service, you know, hey, people fell asleep when Paul was preaching. So, uh, you know, it's a par for the course. So, in fact, I don't know who said it, but there's a wonderful quote that says, preaching is the art of talking in other people's sleep. (laughs) Well, even the Apostle, the great Apostle Paul couldn't hold everyone's attention all of the time. Which of us have not fallen asleep in church? You know, guilty. We've all done it. We've all nodded off at one time or another because, you know, of the week we've had, the day before, broken sleep with kids. I mean, and you want to be here, and then you're like, well, well, I don't know, we bother coming. I just napped through the whole service. But that's the way it goes, isn't it? Anyway, here we have a young man. The word young man here refers to somebody who is between 8 and 14. So he is pretty young. 
And uh, maybe he's up past his bedtime. Maybe mum and dad were going, couldn't get a sitter, so we'll just take him along. And he's sitting in the window. He's as close to the fresh air as he can get. But uh, it's just not enough because Paul's just droning on. And now we come to the lamps. Why did Luke mention the lamps? What do lamps do, oil lamps? They suck the oxygen out of the air. So that it's stuffy and, and they're flickering. And it'll be like driving in the rain, you know, at night. The cars are coming towards you and, and it's flashing and, you're, and you're, you're, try, you're desperately trying to stay awake and you're pinching yourself and you're slapping your face. And, well, that's what I do. But anyway, uh, but it wasn't, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He's sinking into a deep sleep. And uh, next slide, it says, When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Well, even he just met the guy, and he's dead already. That's, what kind of story is this? Well, uh, Paul went down. Nothing like a sudden death, of course, to bring a sermon to an abrupt end. But So Paul went down, we read, and he threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. So let's just kind of picture the scene here for a moment. Young man falls out the window. Sermon stops. Uh, everybody dashes up and, and zooms downstairs, and they gather around. And, you know, falling headfirst out of a window, third, third story. Now, there are some who interpret this to say, look, you know, but he wasn't really dead. He was just stunned. And then Paul, oh, don't be alive, he's alive. No, no, no. There's all kinds of things wrong with that interpretation. First of all, it assumes that the whole crowd of them are just idiots. Because that means they rushed down and said, well, he looks dead. Um, do you think he looks dead? I think he looks dead. No, who, who's going to do that? Nobody does that. You know, you check. Is this, does this person have a pulse? Is there breathing? What else do you, if you're on a plane or you're in a place or in a restaurant, somebody's choking, what do they yell? What, do, what does somebody yell? Like, no, not just help. Is there a doctor in the house? All right, is there a doctor? What I would, there was a doctor in the house. So you can guarantee pretty much that, you know, they're all gathered around, oh, no, no. And then Luke comes in and he can check and now he can make the, uh, the definitive statement He's dead. He's dead. His life is gone. It's over. I don't know. Maybe his neck was broken. Who knows what this... But there's a declaration, he's dead. All right? So the first thing wrong with saying he was just, you know, stunned was that, the, you know, the crowd would have to be idiots. And second, it would assume that there was no doctor in the house, and there was. Thirdly, it also assumes that nobody had any idea what Paul was doing when he threw himself down on top of the young man which is a nonsense because every Jewish Christian there, and there would have been lots of non-Jewish Christians, but every Jewish Christian there would know instantly what Paul is doing. He would recognize it instantly because there are two stories in the Old Testament where people did this to bring a boy back to life. So if you knew those stories and then you saw somebody doing this, you'd instantly think, oh yeah, oh yeah, he, he's trying to bring him back to life. He's trying to raise him from the dead. And the two stories are found, well, first is in 1 Kings. This is, it's with Elijah, who once stayed with um, the widow of Zarephath. Again, we don't know her name. She's just the widow of Zarephath. And Elijah had, uh, under God's command, said there was going to be a drought. And then he kind of goes off in hiding so that King Ahab can't kill him. And he goes to this widow's home, and she is about to make her last meal. She's got one little bit of oil, a little bit of flour, and she has a son. She's going to make her last meal. And he says, will you share that last meal with me? Well, bless her, the widow said, yes, I will. So she made her meal, and then because she did that, 
through Elijah, God said to her, you know, the oil and the flour will not run out. For as long as there's no rain, you will have food available to you. And she did. But while Elijah is staying there, her son dies. All right? And we read this in verse 19.4. Then Elijah, when he's dead, Elijah stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy returned to life, and he lived. Wonderful. You couldn't know that story and not think of that when Paul lies on top of the, the little boy here. Second one is in 2 Kings, and it's the other great prophet, Elisha, who is uh, dealing with the son of a Shunammite woman who dies. And it says, when Elisha, I don't give the whole story, but when Elisha reached the house where the boy was lying dead on his couch, he went in, shut the door on the two of them, and he prayed to the Lord. And then he got on the bed and he lay on the boy. And as he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and he walked back and forth in the room. And then he got onto the bed and he stretched out on him once more. And the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Every Christian, Jewish Christian, in that uh, stood around that boy that night would know instantly what Paul was doing. He is seeking to raise him from the dead. And you know what? That's exactly what God did. Raised him back to life. And when Paul says, don't be alarmed, what he's really saying, enough with the noise and the uproar, stop shouting. He's alive. Because the word alarmed there simply means clamor, uproar, noise. Because if his mom and dad were there, you bet they were making noise. You know, oh, no. There was all kinds of shouting, and Paul's like, no, 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 stop. He's alive. And God brought him back. Now, (laughs) here's the interesting piece. Maybe this happened all the time. Maybe people fell out of windows and Paul resurrected them. But you'd think you'd, there would be some kind of pause and we'd, you know, we'd celebrate. They just, Paul's like, all right, back upstairs, come on, I'm not done yet. And so they, they just troop back upstairs. Because we read in, uh, in the text here, then he went upstairs again and he broke bread and he ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. And the people took the young man home alive and they were greatly comforted. So what a, what a weird night it was for them. I just think it's incredible. They just go back to the meeting like it's no big deal. You know, he's raised from the dead. Oh, yeah, no, no, I've got things I've got to tell you. Come on. Okay. So the tagline for this whole series, remember, was God using ordinary people to advance his kingdom. The ordinary person in this story is Eutychus. All right. Now, Luke is the one who, uh, this is Pastor Luke, is the one who chose the sections of Scripture, and this is one of the ones he gave me. So the only ordinary person in this story is, uh, is Eutychus. So I'm there, you know, I'm reading this, and I'm wondering, so how does nodding off during a sermon, falling out of a third-story window, dying and being resurrected, how does that advance the kingdom of God? And uh, which of us would want to do that? Um, and, you know, you know, any volunteers to go up and fall out the window and let's see what God does to use us as ordinary people. No. So I puzzled over this for a while, but then I remembered the time we did street drama in the city of Chester, and it suddenly made sense as to what we could learn from this passage. Let me explain. In the summer of 1982, I was 22 years old, and I spent the summer traveling around uh, England, still all over the place, different place, 10 different places. We have spent a week in 10 different churches, some of them inner cities, some of them rural, and we were do, there to support and help the church and run all kinds of activities. We did VBS clubs for the kids. We did uh, youth activities. 
Um, we took services, we visited the sick, we knocked on doors, and we also did street drama, street evangelism. So we go to a city center and we do a skit and pull in a crowd and then somebody will talk for a few minutes and uh, talk about Jesus. And that was, so we had a whole range of different things. And the city of Chester was one of the cities we visited. Here's a picture of the downtown. It's a, it's a famous city primarily because the ancient city wall is almost complete still around the inner city area. So we went to, I don't remember if it was that street, but we went to one of the downtown streets one day, and we were going to do this, uh, this open-air evangelism. And the skit, a particular skit that was really, we used a lot, was called The Race of Life. And we drew a chalk line kind of on the road or on the path over here, and about the, the, the width of this stage, we drew one over there. And we had some runners down this end. We had Cynthia Churchgoer, we had Doris Dugoody, and we had Larry Liberal over this end. And they were all warming up, you know, ready to do the race. And, and so we start announcing to try and draw a crowd. Go, come, everybody, come and see the race of life. You know, it's, it's, you're running for your so, And there would always be a few church members who'd stand around, and that would help, you know, because it takes a crowd to draw a crowd. So a crowd would kind of gather. And uh, a lot of times, I was the commentator for this particular skit. And so I would talk about how, you know, Doris Dugody, she's a really nice person. And so she'd shuffle forward a few feet, you know, and yeah, she's winning. And then, but Cynthia Churchgoer, she goes to church twice every Sunday. So she'd move forward and she'd go, oh, yeah, she's ahead of him. And, and Larry Liberal, well, he tries not to hurt anybody anytime. And so he would, and so you just say a few lines about different things, but they get about halfway down the course and you blow the whistle and the race is over. Sorry, none of you got in. And you're like, huh? And so then you explain, you know, there is only one way to get into heaven. And it's not by being good, and it's not by going to church, and it's not by being a, you know, uh, being a nice person. It's through the Lord Jesus. There is only one way into the kingdom. And so and you can only hold a crowd for a few minutes after a skit. So you've got like maybe four or five minutes, which I, I did. All right. At the end of each of the weeks in the different churches, we would have a gathering at church, a wrap-up session, where we'd invite anyone who'd been involved to share what they'd learned or that God had been doing or saying to them. Well, at the wrap-up session in Chester, a young man got up and sh shared how God had used me to inspire him uh, as he'd watched the street drama. So there I am wondering, oh, I wonder what it was that I said that impacted him. What, what words of, of wisdom you know, were imparted uh, as we did that. And then he said something along the lines of, yeah, when I saw Paul up there doing that street drama, I thought, well, if a big guy like that can stand up for Jesus, I can stand up for Jesus too. And I'm like, so I'm big. That's it. That's, that's what God used. It wasn't, it wasn't the power of my professional performance. It wasn't the power of my words. I'm just a big guy, you know. Okay. No, I kind of felt a little deflated at the time. But here's my point. Eutychus doesn't do anything noteworthy in this story. He simply falls asleep and falls out of a window. Apparently, I didn't do anything noteworthy in Chester, but I'm a big guy, all right? And we both, Eutychus and I, both became accidental witnesses. Accidental witnesses for Jesus. And uh, how does the kingdom of God advance through the ordinary young man in Troas? Accidentally. All right. He had no control over this, but he would be talking about this for the rest of his life. His grandchildren would be running up to him and say, Grandpa, tell us a story about how you fell out the window and died and, and then came back to life. We love that story. That, that, that's exactly what they'd be doing. In fact, it wouldn't just be his grandchildren. Anybody he ever met, 
They knew who he was. Oh, so you're the guy that fell asleep when Paul was preaching. Tell us about that. That would be his, he accidentally got a testimony that he would then be giving for the rest of his days. Uh, but the testimony, you know, he had no control over that. It just happened to him. Ties right back in with what I spoke about a few weeks ago, how God can and does use us to be a witness, whether we are aware of it or not, if we make ourselves available to him. Remember Lillian Robbins, the little old lady I visited after arguing with Carol about wanting to go, about, uh, and God showing up to her through me, even though I was just fulfilling a duty. I really did not want to be there that Sunday afternoon. I was an accidental witness that day. But I did find out later that I was. And, but that's the way it works. Accidentally, God can shine his light through us. It says that you know, God puts his, his light in earthen vessels, clay pots. All right. Well, there, there are chinks and cracks because we are not perfect pots. But it's through those cracks a lot of times that God shines his light out and beams in on somebody, some piece of truth that he wants to communicate. Whether it's, well, oh, there's a big guy. Uh, if he can do that, I can do that. Oh, look, he fell out of a window. Well, you know, then, then uh, we'll use that to, uh, to extend the kingdom of God. Tell us your story. Tell us how that worked. Being an accidental witness is easy because we don't know we're doing it. All right? We don't know we're doing it. Uh, it doesn't require an event as dramatic as Eutychus's, uh, as in this story. How do we become an accidental witness? You say, well, if you don't know you're doing it, how can you plan it? Well, no, you don't know what God is going to use to shine out through you. But there is a prerequisite. And the prerequisite is, for us to become an accidental witness, we have to honestly and wholeheartedly place our entire lives in the hands of the living God. You know, we do that when we, when we become a Christian, when we accept God's forgiveness, we say, I'm yours. Well, that was when we first became, that has to go on. Hour by hour, day by day, week after week, year in, year out. It's the placing of my life in God's hands. That's my spiritual act of worship. It's what it tells us in Romans. It says in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, your whole life, to, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. I worship God moment by moment, day by day, as I place my life in his hands and say, here I am, send me. Do what you like. Shine where you like. And God says, thank you very much. I will. And sometimes I might find out about it, but most of the time I won't. But being an accidental witness, that's what he does. I once had a colleague at work. I, uh, my own faith had only just taken off. I was pretty clueless. I couldn't give much of an explanation of, uh, of Christianity. But I, so I'm, what, 19, maybe 20, and Richard, this boy, the guy's name, he comes to me at one lunchtime, and he says, why are you happy all the time? Why? And I'm like, am I? He says, yeah, you're just, you're just happy all the time. Well, of course, I haven't lived very long. I mean, he's only 19 or 20. So there wasn't a lot of bad stuff that had happened to me by this point. But I said, well, that wasn't what I said, of course. I said, well, because I'm a Christian, Richard, and I, you know, God has gotten a hold of my life, because it was all fresh and new for me at that point. And uh, I said, he said, he's like, what does, that, what does that mean? I said, why don't you come with me to this meeting that's going on, and uh, they'll better tell you all about it. So he joined me at this revival meeting, and 
He ran up to the, he ran up to the front after the meeting was over. Just because, it's an accidental witness. You know, he saw that I was happy, and that's what God used to bring him into the kingdom. So, you know, anything that God can use. There was a time I wrestled with God over an item of obedience. He wanted me to do something. I really didn't want to do it. He wanted me to clear out some stuff from my bedroom and books and things. I mean, nothing satanic. It was just, you know, he wanted me to, you know, they had too much of a, too high of a place in my heart. And he wanted me to, uh, he wanted me to know that they needed to be second to himself. So he wanted me to throw them out. I'm like, but I just bought those. And um, they said, so I wrestled with him for a month, refused to do it. If you wrestle with God, it's just miserable, you know? If you don't do what he says, you know, it's not like you can just go about life as normal. It's just like, oh, you know, you lose your joy, you lose your peace. And so eventually, after a whole month of wrestling with him, thinking, no, no, they're, they're fine, they're just books. God's like, no, I want, no, I need to be first in your life. So I finally capitulated and I, and I got rid of them. And, uh, and I'd like to say the heavens opened and the angels sang, but actually just a nice deep sense of peace returned. Well, that weekend, I was going off to join a family who were camping. It was a Christian family camp, uh, and they were under canvas, and they had invited me to come join them. They'd been there all week, and I could only go for the weekend. But, so I had a motorbike at the time, so I jumped on my motorbike, and I drove to where the camp was. And I, I got off the bike, and I'm taking my helmet off, because they're law in England, and right, right by the tent. And I'm walking up the little path you know, between the guidelines up to the tent. And the mother of this family is outside washing dishes in a bowl or something. But she, uh, she looks over. She doesn't say hello or, yay, good to see you. She looks over and she says, something's changed. So what's happened? Something's different. And I'm like, what? You know? To this day, I have no idea what she saw. But she saw something different. And the only thing that had changed was an act of obedience where I'd done what God asked me to do. Accidental witness. Uh, who else saw that? She actually mentioned it. Did somebody else see something in my life? You see, that's how God likes to work. Because then he gets all the credit. If it's an accident, I can't say, well, yeah, I really, I really meant to do that. No, no. It's, it's all of God. He gets all of the credit. It's 1020. I have to wrap up here. Okay. So, how might we become accidental witnesses? Children, how might you be an accidental witness? Let me tell you some ways. Maybe God shines through you because you choose to sit next to the new kid at school. Maybe you share your bag of candy with some friends on the bus, and people don't normally do that. No, this is mine. Or maybe you, you don't laugh when somebody, everybody else is laughing and, and teasing somebody else in the classroom. Maybe you become an accidental witness when you're outside playing and mum or dad calls you in for supper and instead of saying, oh no, I'll just keep going, they'll call me again. You just say, okay guys, see you later, and you run in. And you get to be a testimony, you get to be a witness to your friends. Maybe you teens can be an accidental witness when you refuse to swear continually like everybody else around you appears to be doing. When you don't join in with the gossip session, when you refuse to compare yourself with the celebrity on some magazine cover. See, I'm not going to do that. You become an accidental witness when you choose not to smoke weed. When you say, oh, I went to church. When your friends say, what did you do over the weekend? And you just decide to throw, well, I went to church. And you become an accidental witness because, you know, they don't know what to do with that a lot of times. Or maybe it's when you tell your brother or your sister that you love them 
when in fact you fight with them on a regular basis. But you let them know you love them and you become a witness. Or maybe it's a spontaneous act of service or kindness for your parents. And what about us for adults? We can be accidental witnesses when we lend a neighbor a hand as they build a new deck or clear their yard, when we offer to run a colleague home when their car is in the shop, when we help a friend move, when we refuse to let, uh, use others as stepping stones to get what we want. We can become an accidental witness when we slow down and let a waiting car into busy traffic. You can make that person's day, and you don't know whether they'll ever know it was a God thing, but that's what we can do. When we wander over with a chainsaw when somebody's tree's blown down, you get the idea. There is no limit to the number of things God can use us for to be an accidental witness. But provided we have honestly and wholeheartedly placed our hands into the, uh, placed our lives into the hands of the living God. And then anything and everything God can use. He can use it for our children who will always copy more of what we do than what we say. For our spouse, our friends, our colleagues, to the waiter in the restaurant, to the girl at the checkout, the receptionist in the waiting room, God can show up and shine through in miraculous ways. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all these people of the past who have given testimony to you, some of them in strange ways, some of them in very ordinary ways, and we get to join their number. We get to participate in giving testimony to the king. And so much of that will be accidental. Thank you that as we place our lives in your hands day by day, you delight to use these clay pots that we, uh, we keep this life in and shine through into the hearts and lives of others. So Lord, keep us faithful. Keep us close to you this week. And in your mercy, in your grace, Maybe give us a glimpse of where you're shining through into somebody's life as the week goes by. And may we share stories with one another of encouragements that we get along the way. Thank you. And we offer our lives and our week and our eternity to you. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a fabulous week. And uh, we wrap up this whole series next Sunday.